Okay, guys, uh, we're nearing the end, uh, so if you want to turn over to the book of Proverbs to the very end of the book, to chapter 30, we're uh, just in the last couple of chapters here, and we'll be wrapping this up in the next few weeks. Uh, but before we do, we have to talk about uh, one of the unknown authors of the Bible. And when you think about uh, the men that God used to inspire uh, his inerrant authoritative word, we think of guys like Moses and the Apostle John and uh, Paul and uh, King David. And yet we're going to see there's a guy that gets one chapter. And uh, his name is Agur, or in Hebrew we would pronounce it Agur, uh, putting the uh, the emphasis on the back side of the syllables there. Um, and that's where we're at in Proverbs chapter 30, uh, verse 1, if you want to turn over there. And uh, that's where we will resume our study. If you missed last week, uh, last week was, I, I think, one of my favorite times in Proverbs just because we had this this nugget of a gospel verse buried in the latter chapters of Proverbs. Uh, we called it the gospel according to Proverbs. Um, so uh, be sure to get the notes or listen to the audio if you missed that because that's an uh, important setup for what we're going to look at today. So so who is this uh, who is this guy named Agur? Well, uh, the reality is we have no idea who he is, other than what the Bible tells us right here, that he is the son of Jekyll, and um, he's going to write an oracle or a, a treatise, we might think of it as, to us. And then uh, it says here in verse 1 also, to the, man, the man declares to Ithiel, uh, to Ithiel and Ukul, who may be his sons, kind of following the father-son um, pattern that we've seen in the book of Proverbs with Solomon and his sons, uh, or that could just be two guys uh, that he saw on a Wheaties box one morning or something like that. I don't know who Ethiel and Ukul are, but um, nonetheless, he's declaring these words initially to these men, and God chose in his providence to inscripturate his counsel as God breathed revelation. Uh, so we, we looked at the first few verses last time, and where we find ourselves today are in verses 7 and following. Now, um, I don't know if you like math or not, and I don't know if you like numbers or not, but I want you to pay attention to the number of number references, right? Note the numerical references in what we're about to read. Um, and and uh, I'll, I'll give away a little bit of the, of the lead here, but um, Proverbs is poetry, Right. And and you guys have to take some poetry in your your English classes in college. OK, is that cool or is that not your favorite thing? Not your favorite thing. OK, it was not my favorite thing either. In fact, being honest, I probably slept through most of that um, until I discovered that God inspired poetry. Then I started paying attention. You know, so if, if it's some, you know, Shakespearean sonnet or something like that, eh, OK, whatever. But if God inspires it, we probably should pay attention to it, whether or not that's our cup of tea or not. Um, so this is poetry, and, and, and the way poetry works, and let me just say it like this, the way biblical poetry works, okay, we can talk about other poetry another day, the way biblical poetry works is it presents the message in a way that is non-conventional. Sometimes it's musical, sometimes it's rhythmic, sometimes it uses these odd devices like metaphor and analogy, and, and um, we're going to see one today where... Uh, Agur rearranges the structure of uh, what he's writing to bring a focus to a particular part of what he's saying. So there's a lot of artistry going on. We see this also in the Psalms, and uh, you guys are familiar with the acrostic Psalms, Psalms that start with A, and then the next verse is B, and then the next verse is C, and so on and so forth through the alphabet. Well, think of this not as an alphabetic Psalm, but as a numerical Psalm. And you'll see what I mean here. There, there's number references all over here, and it's really interesting. And we'll, we'll talk together about why he uses all these in a moment. But just note it as I read, okay? You ready? Verse 7, chapter 30, Proverbs. Here we go. Two things I asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I might not be full and deny you and say who is the Lord, or that I might not be in want and steal and profane the name of God. Do not slander a slave to his master, or he will curse you, and you will be found guilty. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. There is a kind who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind 
Oh, how lofty are his eyes. And his eyelids are raised in arrogance. There's a kind of man whose teeth are like swords and his jaw teeth like knives to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren woman, earth that is never satisfied with water and fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. Remember that, young people. Remember that, kids, okay? Um, 18. There are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of a sea, and the way of a man with a maid. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when it becomes king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. Four things are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in the summer. The Shephanim are not a mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizard you may grasp with the hands, yet it is in the king's palaces. There are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. The lion, which is mighty among beasts and does not retreat before any. The strutting rooster, the male goat also, and a king when his army is with him. And so if you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. For the churning of milk produces butter, and the pressing the nose brings forth blood, so the churning of anger produces strife. Wow, my name's Keith, I'm going to be your tour guide today to try to get through all of that, because it it seems exceedingly random and odd, and it's two of this and three of that, nope, maybe four of that, because I forgot one, and... So um, we'll get through this, guys, and we'll see how far we go. But um, I, I do think, as I've studied this, I do think this is not just a bunch of random stuff put together, as is a good section of the, of the Proverbs. I think there is some context here that connects these themes together. So uh, you, can, you can talk to me along the way about uh, what, you, what you see as well, okay? So we don't know who Egger is. Um, it may be, like I said, that he's the dad writing to his sons. But nonetheless, his God-inspired chapter highlights his observations of people and other aspects of creation. Okay, so that's review on who he is. Let's jump into the notes here. First thing, he gives two last requests. And it's interesting, talking about all the numbers in this chapter, chapter uh, 30, verse 7, two things I asked of you. And then he gives three things. Did you catch that? He says, two things I've asked of you, and then he says three things. And it may be that the first thing he says, which is, do not refuse me before I die, is part of his request, right? So two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die, and now he's going to give the two things, okay? That's probably what it means. But what does that tell us about Mr. Agur? Agur, I'm just going to go back and forth. I can't decide how to pronounce it, but um, what does that tell us about him? Yeah, I appreciate the the humble way you said that, the the careful, politically correct way you said that. You know, he's he's in age. Yes, yeah. This is an old guy. This might be a man facing end of life issues. And it's interesting, you know, like uh, like um, several of the patriarchs gathered their children together when their life was coming to an end, and blessed them and gave final counsel. Maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe Mr. Egger is on his deathbed also, and he's gathering his sons together. And he's pouring out uh, wisdom that God has given him throughout his life. He says, do not refuse me before I die, Lord. There's, there are things that I still want to achieve. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe that's not the case. But, but can, can you see with me that the mark of a true believer is a desire to honor God till the day he calls you home? You see that? that that's his focus here. Uh, two things I have asked of you, do not refuse me before I die. And now listen to what he asks for. What, what would you ask as you're seeing the end of life or, or maybe you're just getting on in years and, you know, you're, you're healthy, you're doing well, but you recognize you're not going to live forever. What would you ask? Uh, 
And it's actually pretty incredible what he asks. The first thing he asks for is that God would remove, literally that God would, would keep distant from him. Lord, keep distance between me and deception and believing lies. Now, isn't that interesting? Of all the things he could ask for, why does he ask for God to keep him from lying and deception and embracing things that aren't true? Well, if you've been paying attention in Proverbs, talk to me for a minute about this. What is the significance of believing truth versus believing lies? How significant is that for your life, for my life? It's kind of important, isn't it? Yeah, I see uh, the nodding of heads in the room here. Why is it kind of important? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we've learned in Proverbs that you act, you live out of what you believe. Right? You don't live or act out of the grade you got on a theology test or how you're doing in Awana. Or how many Christian books you read this last year. You live out of what you actually believe at any moment of your life. And the Bible just clarifies this, right? The Bible just makes it really, really simple. You can believe the truth of God is revealed in Scripture, or you can believe something else. And that something else is what the Bible calls deception or lies. Why is the devil called the father of lies? Because he's a one-trick act, right? The devil only has one strategy with you, really, ultimately, and that is to get you to believe things that aren't true. Because if he gets you things to believe things that aren't true, there are 17,000 other things that will go wrong as a result of that. So he aims his, his, his gun at trying to trip you up with that. Uh, T- Pastor Terry's talking about the war with the spirit and the flesh right now. And if you were paying attention last week, and I think he'll talk more about it this morning, uh, the flesh is deception. Uh, the lusts of deceit is one of the phrases used there. De- the desires that you and I have that are based on things that aren't true. That's what pushes us into sin. That's how the flesh, that, that inward sinful part of us that remains, even though we're Christians, uh, that's how the flesh gains a foothold and leads us astray. So it's about lying. It's about deception. And, and how insightful that of, of these two things... He's going to request of God. He says, Lord, keep me from believing what isn't true. Because he understands that if that goes wrong, nothing else really matters. That, that's the origin of, of the problem. We, we were watching a... Um, uh, uh, our family was watching an um, uh, air disaster recreation uh, show last night. About the, Do you remember TWA Flight 800, Big 747? Uh, took off and um, blew up about 13,000 feet in the air. Everybody died. Um, took four years for the NTSB to go through the accident. And um, uh, they finally recognized that what caused the explosion that took down this you know, heavy plane, jumbo jet plane, uh, was a fuel tank that blew up. And you think about that, and, and it was, you know, the show was really well done, because it's, it's like, okay, they, they, they show the thing going up, and everybody dying, and everybody, and, you know, the parts land in the ocean, and what happened, and there were theories about, you know, missiles being shot at this thing, or a terrorist bomb, and all this stuff. And it was really well done, because it's finally getting down to what actually caused this thing, and what actually caused the problem. Actually, there's lots of things, but it came down to one thing, something that sparked flammable jet fuel in the center tank, of this airplane. That's where it started. And then it, it created this chain reaction that resulted in the airplane going down. And what Egger is showing us here is, is the point, the, the, the single thing that starts everything wrong in your life and in my life is this thing called deception. That's the spark that sets everything off. And so we need to be careful of it. Now, now you're probably on to the Bible here by now because the Bible says things 
like this. In Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verse 3, we saw this uh, a long time ago. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Psalm 51, 6. God desires truth in your innermost being. 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Philippians 4, 8. Think on things that are true. You, you see? You see the theme? Why is the Bible always saying, be careful what you believe, be careful what you believe, take your thoughts captive, focus on what's true, renew, renew your mind? Because that is the origin of what you do and how you live. And you can believe the truth of God and reliance on Him, or you can believe something else. So Egger says, help me, Lord. Remove that temptation from me. Help me to stay the course of truth. The second thing he asks, this is interesting, provide enough only for my needs. Look at what he says here. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, now I know how some of you are tempted to pray because I'm tempted to pray like this. Lord, um, it would be so nice to have some financial cushion. I mean, it just really would be, you know. I would be faithful to you if, right? Do you ever pray like that? You look at your bank account and you go, you know, or back in 2008 when the bottom fell out of the stock market, right? And it's tempting to say, Lord, um, just some unexpected money from heaven would be really nice. You know, I, and I, I could, I could support missionaries. I could give more to my church, right? We could build that driveway that we're needing to, it keeps getting expensive and, right? And yet Edgar is designed, is helping us to see that that impulse is misguided. Listen to the wisdom of what he says. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. We, we could simplify that and just say, Lord, provide only for my needs. That sounds biblical, doesn't it? Give us this day our... doesn't say anything about 401k or retirement plan. or Not that those things are bad, but we're asking God to supply our daily needs. Now, it's interesting um, what he says here. He says, um, why do... He says, Lord, why am I not asking for more than I need? Well, verse 9 says, that I not be full and deny you. I think that very few of us can handle prosperity. Time Magazine, January 12, 2016 by Melissa Chan. Headline, here's how winning the lottery makes you miserable. Now, young people, listen to this, okay? Because I know, I know, you're not old enough to buy a lottery ticket, but... You think about the day when that comes. I know that. So listen to this. If you win the 1.5 billion Powerball jackpot, you may not be as lucky as you may think. Many winners befall the so-called curse of the lottery with some squandering their fortunes and other meeting tragic ends. Listen to this. So many of them wind up unhappy or wind up broke. People have had terrible things happen, says Don McNay, a a financial consultant to lottery winners. I didn't know there was such a profession of financial consultant to lottery uh, winners. Um, Listen to this. Listen to what this is a guy who's counseled dozens of lottery uh, winners. That's hard to say in terms of their financial situation. This this is his summary. Okay, people commit suicide. People run through their money, easy comes, easy goes, they go through divorce, or people die. It's just upheaval they're not ready for. It's the curse of the lottery because it made their lives worse instead of improving them. Listen to this. This is staggering. About 70% of people who suddenly receive a windfall of cash will lose it within a few years, according to the National Endowment for Financial Education. Okay, so here's some actual examples, and you're not going to believe that. This is is crazy. Jack Whitaker, quote, 
I wish we had torn the ticket up. Jack Whitaker was already a millionaire when he won $315 million in a lottery in West Virginia, West Virginia in 2002. The then 55-year-old West Virginian construction company president claimed he went broke about four years later, lost a daughter and granddaughter to drug overdoses, which he blamed on the curse of the Powerball win. My granddaughter is dead because of the money, he told ABC. You know, my wife had said she wished that we had torn the ticket up. Well, I wish we had torn the ticket up too. He was robbed of over a half a million dollars sitting in his car while he was at a club eight months after winning the lottery. He says, I just don't like Jack Whitaker. I don't like the hard heart I've got. I don't like what I've become. Young people, are you listening to this? This this is illustrating what the Bible tells us is inspired and true. Abraham Shakespeare, I have be, I have been better off broke. He was murdered in 2009 after he won 30 million a 30 million lotto jackpot. The 47 year old Florida man was shot twice in the chest and then buried under a slab of concrete in his backyard. Um. There was a a lady that befriended him after his win was found guilty of first-degree murder in 2012. His brother, Robert Brown, told the BBC that Shakespeare always said he regretted winning the lottery. I'd have been better off broke, he said. Sandra Hayes, here's here's her line. These are people who you've loved deep down and they're turning into vampires trying to suck the life out of me. Sandra Hayes won the Missouri Lottery in 2006, split the 224 million Powerball with dozens of co-workers. Nice lady. St. Louis woman is now a retired social worker and wrote the book, How Winning the Lottery Changed My Life. She told the Associated Press that she had to, quote, adapt to this new life, which changed how she saw her closest family and friends. Here's a quote. I had to endure the greed and the need that people have trying to get you to release your money to them. That caused a lot of emotional pain. These are people who you've loved deep down and they're turning into vampires trying to suck the life out of me. One more. Donna Micken. My life was hijacked by the lottery. She won $34.5 million in New York State Lottery in 2007. She said the big win ruined her life and led to, quote, emotional bankruptcy. Most of us think that winning the lottery is the ultimate fulfillment, but I found that that wasn't the case. Most people look at winning the lottery as some magic pot of gold waiting for you at the end of the rainbow. But the Long Island woman said she considered herself a happy person before the win. But when I won the lottery, my inner dialogue was manic. I became more concerned about how I was being judged and perceived, not realizing I was the one doing the judging in the first place. If you ask me, my life was hijacked by the lottery. And it goes on and on and on. Check it out, January 2016, Time Magazine. You need to add this topic to biblical counseling. Yeah, we probably should, yeah. yeah. So... Listen to the wisdom of the Bible. Prosperity is not usually blessing. And there are very few people that are spiritually mature enough to handle prosperity. Uh, That's true in positions of power and influence too. It's it's true financially. It's true in leadership. Uh, It's true if you get a platform. We see it in sports, right? You see these sports guys that, you know, get... NFL contracts and and uh, maybe they were a person of character to some degree in high school and college and all that goes out the window in success. So young people, I, I need you I need you to really hear this because I think you are the most vulnerable to believe the lie that success and prosperity and having lots of money and position is is the ticket to happiness. And Egger's saying no, that's a lie. That's a lie. Don't fall into that. He says, too much can tempt one to forget and deny the Lord. And notice, you know, these folks here in the article told us of all this turmoil. The worst part about it is you will forget God. You will deny God. Um, you remember what uh, Moses warned the Israelites? You come into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. Beware. And then what does he say? Do you remember? What, what's that, Jim? That you will forget the Lord your God. And you know how that is, right? Life is good. Money in the bank account. Kids seem like they're healthy. Moving along. And God can sort of move to the peripheral of life. And then a crisis hits. And all of a sudden, God pulls the rug out from under you. And what happens? You go, oh. 
Oh, I need this God. Well, what changed? Did God change? Did you change? Did the way God runs the universe? No. The only thing that changed is your perception of your need of Him. And as the hymn says, we need Him every hour, don't we? We need Him every hour. We just don't always live in light of that. So be careful how you pray. That's Agar's point. Be careful how you pray. Too much contempt one to forget and deny the Lord. And uh, I've got there Matthew 19. We don't have time to look at it. But that's the parable of the rich young ruler. Right? Good teacher. What ought to I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, keep the commandments. Well, I've done that. Great. Go sell everything you have and come follow me. And the gospel, what do gospel writers say? And he went away grieving because he had a lot of stuff. He had a lot of money. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, it is difficult. How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for that camel over there to go through the eye of a needle. The disciples are astonished. Who can be saved? I can't get that camel through that eye of the needle. That's impossible, Lord. Well, that was his point. That was Jesus' point. Remember what he said? With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That's actually not a verse about winning a football game, by the way. With God, all things are possible. It's not about sports winning. It's about the reality of the gospel to overcome your hard heart. That's what that means. So we need to be careful about prosperity. Secondly, notice what he says here. uh, Too little can tempt us to theft and thus to dishonor God. It's not wrong to say, Lord, give me this day our daily bread. Provide for my needs. Uh, We remember in Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes that he's learned in any and every circumstance to be content with whatever God supplies. So those are his last two requests, okay? Keep deception away from me. Provide enough only for my needs. He knows his heart, and I think we can learn from his wise counsel. Number two. Pride in speech. Look at verses 10 and following. The, the thing that, the theme here in these verses is our, our writer here is going to link pride with what it does to your speech. Now you, you need to get this because Proverbs is all about making connections for us. Um, have you ever said something and you go, man, why did I say that? That was kind of dumb. You ever done that, young people? You ever said that? Maybe to mom or dad, maybe to a friend. You go, man, why did I say that? Old people, you ever do that? You say something you regret, and you go, man, why did I say that? Well, Mr. Egger here is helping us to see where those words come from. And to one degree or another, you can trace every form of perverse speech back to a heart of sinful pride. That's his point. Okay, Let, let me show you how he develops that. Look at this. Verse 10, he says, do not slander a slave to his master. What's slander, by the way? What is that? What's that? Yeah, dissing him, okay? It's, it's bad-mouthing him to somebody else. Um, it, it's, it, slant, slander has the idea of, you know, you're, you're trying to paint them in a bad light. You're, you're trying to get them in trouble. You know, gossip is more just, hey, did you hear? And, and you're, you're saying something that's negative, but you're saying it more for the ungodly interest in getting into the personal life of another person okay slander is different slander is like trying to get them into trouble it's trying to bring some negative consequence and he says you should avoid slander why because there's a consequence to slander the master will curse you and you'll be found guilty um i guess it could be the slave that curses him or the master that curses him but nonetheless you will be found guilty before God. And that introduces this idea of our speech and where that comes from. Now, now here's the link, okay? There is a kind of man, there is a kind of man, there is a kind, there is a kind of man. He says it how many times? Four times. Okay, here we have the, the numbers again, right? So there's a kind of man, look what he says here, who curses his father and does not bless his parents, his mom and dad. There is a kind 
who is pure in his own eyes, yet is not washed from his filthiness. And, and there's some real uh, uh, toilet bowl language that's used in that verse. I mean, the, the, the filthiness that's referenced there is of the most base and disgusting of the kind. There is a kind, and he doesn't even finish the sentence here. He doesn't say there's a kind of man. He just stops. There's a kind, oh, how lofty. Oh, how arrogant this guy is. And there's the connection, okay? Let me, let me finish this here. Notice the pattern, guys. Look at this. Sinful speech, cursing parents, like, uh, well, let's, let's read that last verse, actually. So, so I've got it all down there, okay? So, um, verse 14, there is a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, whose jaw, teeth like knives, to devour the afflicted from the earth and the need from among men. We call that verbal abuse in our culture. When we speak like sharp objects to devour other people, okay? So there's, look, look at this. Sinful speech, sinful speech, what's right in the middle? Pride. You see it? Hang on. Sinful speech, sinful speech, what's right in the center of that? What's the heart of it? It's pride. Okay, the, the, the man who is verbally abusing his family is trying to control their lives in an ungodly way. And that comes out of a heart of pride and arrogance. When you and I slander somebody, when we gossip, when we say something hurtful, when we get angry and say things that are unhelpful, when we lie, all these forms of sinful speech come out of a heart of arrogance that says, I must control this situation in some way. Do you see it? And and the arrangement here, I've arranged it in your notes so you can see it here. This is that arrow structure that we see in poetry. It forms an arrow that points to the heart of what we're supposed to see. I'll, I'll show it over here, guys. The, the way that uh, the writer does this is he, in a sense, indents these middle sections, making for us an arrow. If you can kind of picture an arrow there, pointing to that center element, emphasizing that a heart of pride is really the heart of your speech problem. So, so think about this. He, he's he's um, lofty in his own eyes. His eyes are raised in arrogance. It, it, his arrogance affects his perception of what's going on around him. He, and, and notice this. Verse 12, what's his assessment of himself? What's his assessment of himself? Yeah, I'm pure. I'm great. That's why pride is so hard to help somebody with. Because they don't see it. Pride is intrinsically blinding. So you try to talk to somebody about their pride, they say, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, I don't agree with that. I think I'm doing pretty well. Thank you very much. Well, the Bible says, well, yeah, that's exactly how a prideful person is going to react. That's why humility is such a mark of godliness, man. If you've got an ounce of humility, you've got a path of spiritual growth in front of you. But if you are pride and hard hearted, you've got a thousand roadblocks to anything good in your life. Pride is that destructive and that deceptive because the prideful person, (laughs) look at it says here, he thinks he's pure in his own eyes and yet he is not washed of all the things you find in the bottom of an outhouse would be a nice way of paraphrasing what our writer says. So be careful. There's a kind of man whose teeth are like swords, his jaw teeth like knives, who devour the afflicted and the needy. And it comes from a heart of pride. So we need to recognize that. Number three, inspired observations two, three, four, five. Here's where we really get crazy on the numbers. But watch this. This is interesting. You will see the numbers two, three, four, and five. Okay? Look with me here, and I'll help you to see it. Two leeches, three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not enough, and that sequence is repeated five times. Do you see it? Two, three, four, five. Um, Now, what's the point of that? The point is it forms a framework, right? But when you're making a house, what do you do? You frame the house up first, and then you start attaching drywall and, and the rest of it, right? Well, using these numbers frames the section 
so that the author can present to us these situations. Now, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to call this Riddle Me This Batman. Because these are riddles. And you and I get to figure them out. Okay, so you get to be Sherlock Holmes here. And these are some of these are hard, man. I, I studied these for a long time. And I'm not even sure I'm completely confident. The commentators are not completely sure what all these mean. So, so let's see if we can figure these out together, okay? So here's the number two represented. Don't be a leech. I think that's the main point, I think. Don't be a leech. This is a taunt about being a parasite. Okay? Now, now, uh, this is, this is a great message to my, uh, friends. Well, let's just say this. This is a great message for millennials, if I can just say it like that. Um, what uh, sociologists have called the boomerang generation, right? You throw the kids out and, man, they come back. You know, they come knocking at the door. Hey, can I live here for a little more longer? Right? Got some school debt and, you know, I'm not making much. And the boomerang generation, you guys have heard of this. It's the millennial generation. Um don't be a leech. Don't be a parasite. Verse 15, the leech has two... Di- By the way, what does a leech do? It sucks blood out of the life of its host. Oh, we've gone from outhouses to leeches. Man, we're not, we're not doing well here, are we? Um, yeah, and, and uh, what are the two daughters? You, you ever seen a picture of a leech? I should have put one in here. They have two little suckers on the end of them. Is this grossing some of you out? Okay. You don't want the picture? Okay. All right. I do have a picture, but it's of a very cute, furry little friend. So, um, yeah, they got these two little suckers on them. Give, 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 give. Like, like you see the, the, the charter bus go by, give blood, right? Well, that's what the leech does, but in a parasitic way. Leech, 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 leech. Give, 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 give. And what we think, what, what commentators think is that this was actually a taunt that for people that were, were, relying on others, sort of leeching off of them financially, relationally, geographically in terms of housing, whatnot. People that are, are really taking advantage of others' hospitality. Okay, that's a leech in a metaphor way. What we think is going on is this little phrase here, the leech has two daughters, give, give. That was a taunt. That was something you said to somebody who was a leech. That was something you, you said to somebody who was taking advantage of someone else's hospitality. So be careful. We saw in Proverbs uh, where the Proverbs says, don't be very often in your neighbor's house. Why? Why should you not be in your neighbor's house for very, very often? You overextend your welcome. Yeah. The Proverbs says, lest he despise you and your hospitality, your, your, your welcome mat is removed. So don't be a leech. How about this? Uh, Look at the next verse here. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Okay, now, riddle me this, Batman. What do Sheol, the barren woman, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough have in common? Yeah, they're insatiable. They're, they're, They're not satisfied. Now, the writer does give us a little bit of help because he says here, there are three things that will not be satisfied, so that helps. But you still have to kind of, kind of piece it together, okay? So these are things that are never satisfied, um, and we can we can see that, right? We can see that Sheol, which is the grave, right? People continue to die, and the grave continues, as it were, to accept more uh, residents. Uh, the barren womb, in terms of uh, th- there's not enough, there's not something that can. You know, you, you can give a, a woman who wants a child, you can give her the lottery and she will still say that's not enough. What she wants is a child. Okay, that's the point. Um, earth that is never satisfied with water. You think, no, no, wait a minute. We're under flooding conditions right now. Uh, our Civil Air Patrol squadron right here in Granbury w- was tasked this last week to go do flood aerial photography on a couple of the rivers that have overflown their banks here in the state of Texas. And uh, the Texas Corps of Engineers will take our photos and process them and FEMA will give aid accordingly and they will rebuild dikes and things like that. We're not, we, we don't have a problem with this, but, but think about that. There are still parts of the world that are in drought conditions, like our friend here from California, still under drought conditions. 
Uh, my family that lives back home in California, still in drought conditions. So the earth is never satisfied with enough water, even though there might be regional flooding. And fire that never says enough. Speaking of uh, California, they had a record uh, wildfire season this last year. And uh, there were, I think at one point, over 100 fires that were going of one form or another. I'm just, just amazing, staggering. Uh, I talked to a, a friend of mine, a high school friend of mine, who uh, I re- reconnected with recently. He lost his whole house in Santa Rosa last fall due to a fire. Um, so what's the takeaway here? Why would he want to point out things that are never satisfied? It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor of a person who is never satisfied. The the point is not to say, you know, those are really the issue. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. We can be like that. We can, we can always be looking for the next thing, the next experience, the next relationship to try to satisfy us. And, And this is a metaphor of the fact that God's good gifts that he give us, gives us was never meant to be a source of ultimate satisfaction. Only the God who gives those gifts can be our ultimate satisfaction. Right? You see it? That's the point. Amazon Prime, yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, yes that's good. Joe. That's good, Rich. Yes, yes. Uh, Amazon Prime is never satisfied. Okay, let, let's do uh, one or two more of these, and then we'll we'll have to put a comment in our notes here. Um, okay, so riddle me this, Batman. The eye that mocks a father and scorns a mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. Well, wait a minute. That goes back. That actually goes back to verse 11, doesn't it? The kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. We think... Okay, what's so bad about that? Well, here's the, here's the, you know, what happens scenario. Uh, the ravens will pick your eyes out. Highlight that, teenagers, do that. Uh, no. Um, no, and, and what he's saying is, uh, there is real shame. There is real consequence to a person who dishonors their parents in that way. In the nation of Israel. The civil law of the nation was such that if you committed these sort of offenses against your parents, you could be taken to court and tried and incarcerated or even killed for dishonoring your parents. Now, I'm not advocating that we put those rules back into place, but what does that do? It shows us something of the heart of God when we dishonor our parents, doesn't it? And, and this this is real graphic. You know, we've got uh, toilet talk here. We've got leeches. And now we've got birds picking eyes out of people who dishonored their parents. It's like, ugh. But that's the point. We're, we're, we ought to have a ugh reaction to sin. Shouldn't we? And we're so, so numb because sin is so normal. And we don't react. Listen, the the godly believer reacts with disgust over sin. We ought to. That's what our writer is trying to help us to see. There should be a a holy reaction of disgust to our sin. Okay, riddle me this, Batman. There are three things which are too wonderful me. Four which I do not understand. By the way, why does he say three and then four? Is he just dumb? And he goes, uh, I don't count so well. Is, is that it? Emphasis, maybe? Emphasis? I think what he's trying to say is, I'm not giving you a comprehensive list. I'm giving you a sample. Okay, that's probably what's intended by that. I don't know for sure. But look what he says. Three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. This, verse 20, is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no 
wrong. Okay, this one's a little bit trickier. So riddle me this, Batman. What is what are these verses about? Your your Bible might say too wonderful. Uh, anybody have a different translation of verse eighteen? Things which are too wonderful. Amazed. Amazed. Anybody have a different version? Different rendering. You didn't know you have to work so hard in Sunday school today, did you? Okay, well, here's the problem. The, the word itself can be negative or positive. It can mean difficult. Well, it means difficult. That's what the word literally means difficult. It can be difficult like, wow, what a beautiful sunset. I can't imagine how God made something so beautiful. It's difficult in terms of it's so wonderful, it's so beautiful, I can't figure it out. But difficult can also be like calculus, where you go, oh, right? It's, it's difficult and it's discouraging. It's difficult and it's, it's challenging. Or as, as it can be used in the Bible, unusual or difficult meaning inappropriate. So it can go either way. It can be positive or it can be negative, And that's for you guys to figure out. Okay, so, so let's put this together. What do... An eagle in the sky, a serpent on the rock, and a ship in the middle of the sea have in common? They never leave trails. Very good. Very good. He's absolutely right. Think about that, right? Eagle goes through the sky. We go, wow. Where'd he go? I don't know, because it's not like an air show that he leaves a, he leaves a smoke trail, right? He doesn't, the, the eagles don't come with smoke kits, you know, so you can follow them. And then you watch a snake or a serpent on a rock and we look at their uh, mobility and and it's fascinating but there's no i mean if it's dirt maybe there's a little bit of a trail but on a rock there wouldn't be a trail would there be you look at a ship in a sea there's a little bit of a wake but that wake dissolves within a matter of seconds they don't leave a trail okay I, I i agree with jim so we're right so so what does that have to do now with the last example moving into the adulterous woman verse in verse 20. The way of a man with a maid. Right, right. Because we could say this is, if it's amazing, we could say this is God talking about the wonder of a husband and wife's physical union in marriage. We'd say, yeah, that, that's it. But there's a word that actually helps us to think about this as a negative rather than a positive, okay? There's one word in this section. I want to see if you can find it, okay? I'm going to help you to learn how to read your Bible a little more carefully here. There's one word that tips the scale to this being a negative example, not a positive example. Made, okay, that's a good thought. He doesn't say husband and wife, which may, would have made, made it more explicit. Okay, all right. So, so this is starting to look more like a licit physical relationship rather than a godly one in the context of marriage. Okay, I agree with that because the language is more general than we would expect. But there's a better clue. Not way. Uh-huh. Okay, read the beginning of verse 20. Okay, it's way, but what comes before the word way in verse 20? This. We have a pronoun. And what does that do? It says, this, looking backward, is the same thing we see in adultery. Okay? Yes, that's exactly it. Do you see that? Well, I agree. I agree. Okay. So you see it? This is the same way that the adulterous woman follows. Again, let me put this together because it's confusing. What does an eagle in the sky, a serpent on the rock, and a ship in the sea have in common? They don't leave a trace. And when a man and a woman that aren't married have physical relationships with one another and walk away from it, like nothing significant happened, which is totally and completely the way our highly sexualized culture um, works today. It's taking something that God designed as holy 
and perverting it. When we turn a wonderful gift of sexual relations in the context of marriage into just no big deal that happens thousands and thousands of times just on a college campus weekend. And people say, that's no big deal. There's no trace. There's no, there's no, nothing comes of it. It's, it's not significant. And Agar very, very wisely says, it's just like, when you do that, it's just like the adulterous woman who says, it's just one more meal to me. It's just one more. It, it's, it's like having lunch. Right? She wipes her mouth and she says, I've done nothing wrong. Guys, this is a warning, particularly about sexual sin, in the numbness that we can get to because of a sexually charged culture where a person does not experience the guilt and shame they ought to feel over sin. Do you see it? That's what's going on here. I think that one is probably the hardest one uh, to see. Um, but it helps that we we recognize in verse 20, there's that connecting word that helps us to see that verse 20 and verse 19 go together. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that a good gift that God gives to a married couple is so perverse and so abused to where people say it's no big deal. There's no guilt and there's no shame and there, there's no value in it at all. Okay, so put a comma in your notes and uh, we'll come back to uh, the inspired observations of our friend Agur uh, next time, okay? Food for thought, interesting? Okay, it, it's, you got to work for it, but you work for it, you get there, you go, man, that's a good reminder. So let's take these things to heart and pray that God will give us grace to be doers of the word. Father, thank you for uh, this section that uh, has required a bit, a bit more mental power today, but we thank you for... Um, the curiosity that it creates and and how in your kind providence sometimes when we have to work harder at the text to learn what it means it actually helps us to remember those things even better so i pray it would have that effect today would we take the wisdom that we've uh, gained today and would you help us to walk in faith uh, putting these things into practice avoiding uh, the pitfalls that this inspired writer has uh, helped us to see clearly so that we can avoid them and reminding us uh, to simply walk with you in faithfulness and in truth. Uh, will you give us grace to do that? Help us to uh, speak the truth in love now to one another, to, to be able to practice those one another's of encouragement and prayer and, uh, and godly counsel as we go into our fellowship time now and, and pray as we head to the worship service in a few minutes as well that you will unite our hearts in song and in prayer and in the reading and hearing of your word that we might be more like Jesus this morning because of this time. We pray in his name. Amen.